This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Today I have for you a vision of Don Bosco. It is written in the third person. It is something he saw. He doesn't have words here himself. He's describing what he saw. And it is a vision that comes with a very clear message that once innocence is lost, it is not possible to get it back. It is merely something that we should cling to if we can. And that is, you know, why our Lord's words about those who scandalize the young are so important for us to understand. And if we have lost the, our innocence, then we must make use of the sacraments to not regain our innocence, because that cannot be regained, but in order that we may at least be free of the stain of mortal sin. That if we understood the cost of mortal sin, we would never dare commit them. It is something that we should be reflecting on, and I think it's a good thing to reflect on on our way to Mass, where hopefully your parish offers the sacrament of confession before the Mass, or during Mass even. This dream of St. John Bosco begins a little differently than others. It's, it begins in the third person, which is odd, but I think you will find this enlightening. In the month of July 1884, Don Bosco had a dream, which lasted all the night. He seemed to have in front of him an immense and beautiful slope, green with vegetation, all smooth and even. On the low border, this meadow ended in a long step from which one could enter the path where Don Bosco was standing. It seemed an earthly paradise, brilliantly illuminated by a light purer and brighter than the light of the sun. The slope was all covered with tender fresh grass, decked with a thousand kinds of flowers and shaded by a great many beautiful trees, which, intertwining their branches, stretched out like so many large festoons. In the middle of the garden, reaching to the edges of it, was stretched out a carpet of magic color, which, though not bright, dazzled the sight. It was several miles wide and looked royally magnificent. By way of ornament, on the other band which ran along the border, there were various inscriptions and letters of gold. On one side it read, in Latin, Blessed are they who pass through the life's journey unstained, who follow the law of the Lord. On the other side it read, To innocent lives he will never refuse his bounty. On the third side was written, They will not be dismayed by adversity. In time of famine they will be well content. On the fourth, Jealously the Lord watches over the lives of the guiltless. They will hold their lands forever. On the four corners of the carpet around a large magnificent rose were four other inscriptions. His conversation is with the simple. He will protect them that walk in simplicity. They that walk sincerely walk confidently. He will be in them that walk sincerely. Then in the middle of the carpet was written this last one. He that walketh sincerely shall be saved. In the middle of the slope, on the higher side of the brilliant carpet, there stood a shining banner on which was written in letters of gold, Son, thou art always with me, and all I have is thine. If Don Bosco had marveled at the sight of this garden, his attention was even more attracted by two beautiful maidens about twelve years of age who were sitting on the edge of the carpet where the slope ended in a step. The whole of their gracious behavior breathed a heavenly modesty. In their eyes, ever turned upwards, there was not only an ingenuous, dove-like simplicity, 
but there shone forth an ardor of the purest love and a joy of heavenly bliss. Their foreheads, open and serene, seemed to be the seat of candor and sincerity. On their lips played a sweet and charming smile. Their features revealed a tender and loving heart. The graceful movements of their person gave them an air of sovereign dignity and nobility, which contrasted with their youth. A pure white robe reached to their feet, and on it neither stain nor crease was to be seen, nor the slightest speck of dust. They were girt about with a bright red sash, fringed with gold. On this sash there shone out a garland of flowers composed of lilies, violets, and roses. As a necklace they wore a similar garland, composed of the same flowers, but of a different shape. On their wrists they wore bracelets of white daisies. All these things and flowers had a shape, color, and beauty impossible to describe. All the most precious stones in the world, though cut with the most exquisite skill, would seem but mud in comparison. Their white shoes were embroidered with white ribbon, interwoven with gold and making a beautiful bow in the center. White with little threads of gold were also the laces with which they were tied. Their long hair was fastened by a crown which encircled their foreheads, and it was so thick that it curled wave-like from under their crown and fell down on their shoulders. They had begun a dialogue. Now they would speak by turns. Now they would ask each other questions and would utter exclamations. Now they would both be sitting down. Now one would remain seated while the other would stand, and sometimes they would walk to and fro. But they never went outside that shining carpet, and in touched neither the grass nor the flowers. In his dream, Don Bosco was a spectator. He did not say a word to those maidens, nor did they notice his presence. One said to the other in a very sweet voice, What is innocence? The happy state of sanctifying grace, preserved by means of the constant and exact observance of the divine law, and the preserved purity of innocence is the fountain and source of all knowledge and virtue. The first. What a brilliance, what a glory, what splendor of virtue to live among the wicked and yet to preserve the purity of innocence and the integrity of morals. The second rose to her feet and stopped near her companion, exclaimed, Happy is that youth who does not listen to the counsels of the wicked and does not tread the way of sinners, but whose delight is the law of God, on which he meditates day and night. He shall be as the tree planted near the running waters of God's grace which will give in its time copious fruit of good works, in spite of the blowing of the winds, the leaves of good intentions, and of merits shall not fall from him, and all that he does shall have good results. Every circumstance of his life cooperates in increasing his reward. So saying, she pointed to the tree of the garden, loaded with beautiful fruits, which spread a delicious perfume on the air, while crystal-clear brooklets were flowing now between two flower-covered banks, now falling in little cascades, and now forming small pools, washing around the trunks of the trees with a murmur like the mysterious sound of far-off music. The first maiden replied, He is like a lily among thorns, which the Lord culls in his garden to make it an ornament over his heart, and he can say to his Lord, My beloved to me and I to him, for he feeds among the lilies. So saying, she pointed to a great number of beautiful lilies, which raised their snow-white cups among the grass and the other flowers, while in the distance a very high green hedge surrounded the whole garden. This hedge was made of close-set thorns, and behind it one could see loathsome monsters wandering about like ghosts, trying to get into the garden, but they were prevented by the thorns of the hedge. That is right, what truth there is in your words, added the second. Happy the youth who will be found without fault. Who is he, and we will praise him, 
for he has done great things in his life. He has been tried and found perfect, and he shall have glory everlasting. He could have sinned, and he did not sin. He could do evil things and has not done them. Therefore are his goods established in the Lord, and all the church of the saints shall declare his good works. What glory God has set apart for them on earth, he will call them. He will give them a place in his sanctuary as ministers of his ministries, and he will give them an eternal name which will never perish, concluded the first. The second rose to her feet and exclaimed, Who can describe the beauty of an innocent soul? Such a soul is splendidly robed like one of us, adorned with the white stole of baptism. His neck and arms are resplendent with divine jewels. He is on his finger the ring of union with God. He walks lightly on his way to eternity. Moreover, there stretches out before him a road adorned with stars, a living tabernacle of the Holy Ghost, with the blood of Jesus in his veins, coloring his cheeks and his lips, with the most holy trinity in his unspotted heart. He sheds around torrents of light, which clothe him with the brilliance of the sun. A shower of flowers rains down from on high and fills the air. Wafted all around are sweet strains of music of angels, echoing his prayer. Mary Most Holy stands beside him, ready to defend him. Heaven is open to him. He is a charming sight to the immense legion of saints and blessed spirits who receive and welcome him. God, in the unapproachable splendor of his glory, points out with his right hand the throne he has prepared for him, while in his left hand he holds the shining crown which is to adorn him forever. The innocent is the desire, the joy, the applause of paradise. His face is adorned with ineffable joy. He is God's son. He is God for a father, and paradise for his inheritance. He is continually with God. He sees him, loves him. He possesses and enjoys him. He has a ray of the delights of heaven. He is in possession of all his gifts and of his perfections. That is why innocence in the saints in the Old Testament, in the saints of the New Testament, and especially in the martyrs, appears so glorious. O oh, innocence, how beautiful you are! When tempted, you increase in perfection. When humbled, you rise more sublime. In the combat you come forth victorious, and in death you fly to your crown. In servitude you are free, in dangers you are tranquil and safe, in chains you are happy. The powerful bow down to you, the rulers welcome you, and the great seek you. The good obey you, the wicked envy you, your rivals emulate you, your adversaries succumb to you. Should men unjustly condemn you, you will always come out victorious. The two maidens paused an instant, as if to regain breath, after such an ardent exertion, and they took hold of each other by the hand, and, looking at each other, continued. Oh, if the young knew what precious treasure innocence is, how jealousy they would guard the stole of holy baptism right from the beginning of their life. But unfortunately they do not reflect, and they do not imagine what it means to stain it. Innocence is a most precious liquor, but it is enclosed in a vessel of frail clay. Innocence is a very precious gem, but its value is not known. It is lost and easily exchanged for a worthless object. Innocence is a golden mirror which reflects the image of God, but a breath of damp air is enough to dim it, and one must keep it covered with a veil. Innocence is a lily, but the mere touch of a rough hand spoils it. Innocence is a white robe. Let your garments be glittering white at all times, but one single stain is enough to soil it. Therefore, one must walk with great precaution. Innocence is integrity. It is lost if it is spoiled by a single sin, and it loses the treasure of its beauty. Just one mortal sin is sufficient, and once it is lost, it is lost forever. What a pity that every day so many lose their innocence. 
When a boy falls into sin, paradise is closed. The Most Holy Virgin and his angel guardian disappear. The music ceases. The light is put out. God is no longer in his heart. The starry road which he had trodden vanishes. He falls and remains on one point like an island in the middle of the sea, a sea of fire which extends to the furthermost horizon of eternity and goes down to the depths of chaos. Above his head in the darkened sky, the lightning of the divine justice flashes threateningly. Satan has rushed upon him and loaded him with chains, has placed his foot upon his neck, and raising his horrible, ugly snout has cried out, I have conquered, your son is my servant, he belongs to you no more. Joy is over for him. If at that moment the justice of God takes away that one point which supports him, he is lost forever. He can rise again. God's mercy is infinite. A good confession will give back the grace of God and the title of Son of God. But no more innocence, and what consequences of the first sin will, will remain in him. He knows evil, which he did not know before. He will feel how terrible are his base inclinations. He will feel the enormous debt which he has contracted with the divine justice. In spiritual combats he will be weaker. He will, be, he will experience what he never experienced before, namely shame, sadness, and remorse. And to think that before it was said of him, Suffer little children to come unto me. They will be as the angels of God in heaven. Son, give me thy heart. Oh, what a frightful crime is committed by those wretches through whose fault a child loses its innocent. Jesus has said, He that shall scandalize one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone should be hanged around his neck, and that he should be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of scandals. It is not possible to avoid scandals, but woe to him through whose fault the scandal comes. See that you despise not any one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father, who is in heaven, and they demand vengeance. Unfortunate is the scandal-giver, but not less unhappy are those who allow themselves to be robbed of their innocence. Here both maidens began to walk about. The subject of their conversation was concerning the best means for preserving innocence. One of them said, a great mistake which boys make is that of thinking that penance must be practiced by sinners only. Penance is necessary also in order to preserve innocence. If St. Aloysius had not done penance, he would certainly have fallen into mortal sin. This should be continually preached, inculcated, and taught to children. How many more would preserve their innocence, while at present there are so few? The Apostle says that we must carry everywhere with us the mortification of Jesus Christ in our bodies, that also the life of Jesus may be manifest in us. And Jesus, the Holy, the Immaculate One, passed his life in privations and sufferings. So did Mary Most Holy. So did all the saints. It was to give an example to all youth. St. Paul says, If you live according to the flesh, you shall die. But if according to the Spirit, you shall give the death blow to the inclinations of the flesh, you shall live. Therefore, without penance, innocence cannot be preserved. And yet many would like to preserve their innocence and live a free and easy life. What foolishness! What foolishness! Is it not written, He was taken away, that wickedness might not contaminate his spirit, nor seduction lead his mind into error? Because the charm of vanity does not bring any good, and the whirlpool of concupiscence drowns the innocent soul. So the innocent have two enemies. One, the false maxims and the bad conversations of the wicked. And two, concupiscence. Does not the Lord say that death at an early age is a reward for the innocent, to take him away from the combats? Because he pleased God, he was beloved, and because he was living among sinners, he was taken away. Being made perfect in a short space, he fulfilled a long time. For his soul pleased God, therefore he hastened to bring him out of the midst of iniquities. 
he was taken away, lest wickedness should alter his understanding, or deceit beguile his soul. Happy those children who will embrace the cross of penance, and with a firm resolution will say with Job, Till I die, I will not depart from my innocence. Hence mortification and overcoming weariness in prayer. It is written, I will sing, and I will understand in the unspotted way. When shalt thou come? Ask, and ye shall receive our Father. Mortification of the intellect by humbling oneself, obeying the superiors and the rules. It is also written, If they shall have no dominion over me, then shall I be without spot. And this sinful dominion is pride. God resisteth the proud and giveth his grace to the humble. He that humbles himself shall be exalted, and he that exalteth himself shall be humbled. Obey your superiors. Mortifications in telling the truth always, and revealing one's defects and the dangers in which one may find oneself. Then one will always have suitable advice, especially from one's confessor. For the love of your soul, do not be ashamed to tell the truth. For there is a blush which brings sin with it, and there is a blush which brings glory and grace. Mortifications of the heart, checking its thoughtless movements, loving all for God's love, tearing oneself resolutely from anyone we perceive to be endangering our innocence. Jesus said, If thy hand and foot scandalize thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life having one foot or one hand missing than with both hands and both feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Mortification in supporting courageously and frankly the mockery of human respect. They have wetted their tongues like a sword. They have bent their bow. A bitter thing to shoot in secret the undefiled. This human respect, which mocks while fearing to be discovered by the superiors, will be conquered by thinking of the terrible words of Jesus Christ. He who is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him, when he shall come in his majesty. Mortification of the eyes, in looks, in reading, in shunning, in bad and unsuitable literature. An essential point. I have made a contract with my eyes never to look at a maiden, and in the Psalms. Turn away thine eyes, that they have seen not vanity. Mortification of the hearing. Never, li never listening to bad, imprudent, or impious conversations. In Ecclesiasticus we read, Put a hedge of thorns around thine ears, and do not listen to the wicked tongue. Mortification in speech. Not allowing oneself to be overcome by curiosity. It is also written, Put a door and bolt to your mouth. Take care not to sin with the tongue, so that you may not fall to the ground at the sight of the enemies who oppose you, and that your fall will not be incurable and mortal. Mortification in eating and drinking, neither eating nor drinking too much. Too much eating and drinking drew down the universal flood upon the earth, and fire on those cities destroyed in the Old Testament, and a thousand chastisements on the our <clears throat> elder brothers. In short, to mortify oneself in all that happens throughout the day, cold and heat, and never seeking out personal satisfaction. Mortify your earthly limbs. Remember what Jesus has commanded. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. God himself, with his provident hand, girds his innocence with crosses and thorns, as he did with Job, Joseph, Tobias, and other saints. Because thou wast acceptable to God, it was necessary that temptation should try thee. The way of the innocent has its trials and sacrifices, but it has its strengths in holy communion, because he who communicates frequently has eternal life. He is in Jesus, and Jesus is in him. 
He who lives with the same life as Jesus will be raised up by him at the last day. This is the wheat of the elect, and the wine which produces virgins. Thou hast prepared a table before thee, against them that afflict me. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but they will not come nigh to thee. And the virgin most sweet beloved by him is a mother to him. To him who is able to preserve you without sin, and to present you spotless before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and magnificence, empire and power, before all ages, now and for all ages. Amen. While they were singing, more and more angels were continually joining them, and when the canticle was finished, little by little they all rose on high and disappeared. Thus vanished the whole vision. And that was an odd third-person vision of Don Bosco, as recorded in his diary. It is a sober reminder, as most of his are, of the need to maintain our purity. And if we have lost our innocence, which means if you have ever committed a mortal sin, to do everything you can to avoid such sins again. We don't hear this much in the church today, do we? It's food for thought, I think, especially in a time when it appears that the church is working, or those who operate the mechanisms of the church, rather, are working to get the church to accept sin. I hope you found this useful today. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.